I'd ask that you would pray for me. As a Scotsman, uh, I desperately need prayer. As a broken sinner, I desperately need prayer. As part of C2C's team, uh, part of C2C network, which started as a pokey little entity with the Mennonite brethren, you know, in BC, the Board of Church Extension for the British Columbia Conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches. Obviously, someone who was really bad at marketing came up with that name. That's about the dullest and unsexiest name you could have for a ministry. And then they rebranded, because they thought, we can't call ourselves the Board of Church Brethren. And so they called it Church Planting, BC, yippee. And then it no longer became a sandbox for the MBs alone because Jesus is bigger than the Mennonite brethren. Uh, the MB started funding a Pentecostal church plant. Wow, just imagine that, sliding money across the table to one of those crazy tongue speakers. And, and that's what they did. And then it's morphed into a national entity and an intertribal entity. Today, we've got 120 church planters and apprentices uh, starting gospel outposts from coast to coast. We work with 31 evangelical denominations, and you say, how is that possible? Well, what we have in common, King Jesus is infinitely more significant than the important doctrinal and denominational differences. So I've got a friend who's a Presbyterian, and I said to him, you baptize your way, I'll baptize God's way. And he just, <laughs> and he, he just stared at me. He, he didn't even flicker. And so I said to him a couple of days later, hey, I dissed you when we were out for dinner. He said, I wasn't listening to you. I said, okay, that figures. <laughs> so those are important. But actually, what's most important of all, even as we were reminded in a testimony this morning, the one who is more sufficient than the pursuit of money, who's greater than the prospect of one of three cancer diagnoses, is King Jesus. So we want to centralize around Jesus, proclaim Jesus, and see his fame spread. So as you pray, we'd invite you to pray for us as we're involved in pioneer ministry with First Nations, as we're involved in planting churches and proclaiming the gospel in Quebec, as we're involved in unprecedented partnerships in Atlantic Canada, you could pray Luke 10 too. We need more gospel workers deployed into the Canadian harvest fields. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. We need the power and energy and anointing of the Holy Spirit. You could pray Zechariah 4 verse 6 which says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So I thought I would grab a few moments to ask you to pray that the Lord would empower us, the Lord would lead us, the Lord would resource us. I know some of you do stand in prayer with C2C Network, and we're grateful to God for your prayers and for your financial support. But this morning, I want to speak on revival prayer. I get the privilege to be knee-deep in church planters, the crazy breed of church planters who want to start a brand new gospel work, many of them with a desire to reach the lost, and that's a great privilege, and we hear stories of gospel transformation. I think last year there was over 700 baptisms, the year before 750 baptisms, so that's really good news, but actually I think God wants to do something more. 
something spectacular, something at a greater level, something unprecedented in our lifetimes, and that is to send a spiritual awakening that would shake the sleepy church and propel the sleepy church into a greater New Testament dynamic. And from the ripples of a revived and renewed church, we would see greater gospel transformation in our day. So how might we pray that way? I'm glad you asked that question. If you'd like to turn in your Bible to Isaiah 64, I'm going to be reading from page 745 in my stolen Gideon Bible that I ripped off the hotel. They'll forgive me. The Gideons will forgive me. And just to confuse you, I'm going to start at Isaiah 63. Here's the first profound insight. 63 comes before 64. I know some of you didn't realize that. So I'm going to start reading from verse 15, and then we will motor into the verses that will appear up on the screen for you. Isaiah 63, verse 15 is a prayer. And so if we want to pray, we can pray in sync with Scripture. And Isaiah 63, 15 says, Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, but you're our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From of old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance, for a little while. Your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. So a little pause button there. Uh, This is an exile. People are geographically and spiritually displaced and disoriented people. And part of their chaos is the fact that the temple was ransacked and plundered. So that's got them in a spiritual tailspin. They forgot that Solomon said, even although he was the architect of the glorious, beautiful temple, God doesn't live in structures built by human hands. But for them, they lost their spiritual equilibrium. They lost their moorings. And maybe the disastrous icing on the disastrous cake of captivity and enslavement and displacement for them who localized God into a temple, was that the temple was destroyed. And then they remind God, verse 19, we are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. And now, Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down, to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against him, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. 
You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray. Father, in these moments, we pray that your spirit would illuminate and anoint your word and that your word and your truth and your rule and your reign would gain greater access into our hearts and our lives. Lord, we are your children. We want to hear your voice. So we pray for your life-giving, life-changing, corrective voice. Jesus, speak to us, we pray in your strong name. Amen. So here we've read a, a plea this kind of book ended when I read from Isaiah 63, verse 15, and then I stopped at verse 9. It's bookended by two pleas. Look down from heaven and look down on us, we pray. Isaiah 63, verse 17 tells us that the people of God had wandered off course. And how's that possible? And you're here this morning, and maybe you've wandered off course. Maybe a slow spiritual erosion has taken place over an extended period of time, and you no longer realize. Like it says of Peter in the Gospels, he followed Jesus from a distance, and you no longer realize that your heart and your affections are not aflame the way they once were for the Lord Jesus, and that you've slowly over an extended period of time. Got into a routine, got into a rut. Sometimes the people of God wander off course and engage in brazen rebellion and, and disobedience. And here we see the people of God, God's old people in the old covenant had wandered off course and Isaiah 63, verse 17, tells us their hearts had become calcified. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What's the condition of your heart this morning? Do you have a heart and a passion for Jesus? King David was a wild man. He was a poet. But he was like, kind of like William Wallace. He loved killing people. He was a warrior king and a warrior and would be the scariest person in Pastor Curtis's worship team. He'd come in, play music with blood dripping off his hands, and say, okay, who did you kill David Tellis? So he was a barbarian. He wasn't that sweet, effeminate shepherd boy up in the hills lifting thongs to Jesus. He was a wild man, a scary man, an intimidating figure. He was an adulterer and a murderer and a manipulator. But that is not the scriptural definition of who he was before God, because God erases our rebellion and our sin. He's called a man after God's own heart. But here, collectively, the people of God were no longer after God's own heart. They'd kind of turned in on themselves. And there's a prayer to God here. You might think it's a strange prayer, a prayer, return for the sake of your servants. Often in Scripture, and this is the prophetic message, the prophets in the Old Testament would say, turn, return, return to the Lord. Jesus, to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, says, return to your first love. But here, the people of God, led by the prophet, encapsulated here in Scripture, pray that God would turn his face again to his 
people. And then the prayer intensifies as we read in Isaiah 64. Come down. Oh, that you would rip the heavens apart. Kind of like God's coming through a canopy or coming through the curtains. And with his strong arms, with his almighty hands, he rips apart the sky. And then he shows up in this desolate spiritual landscape. He shows up amongst these displaced and spiritually cold and sin-accommodating people to change things around. Come down to make your name great. So what's going on here? We have a prayer here in Scripture that you and I are invited to echo in Jesus' name in our day. Oh Lord, we need a visitation from heaven. Come down and shake things up. Come like a blazing fire. Set the twigs, the dry tinder, the lifeless twigs of our lives our activity, set them ablaze with fire from heaven. Turn up the temperature, Father, like someone would put a fire under a pot and the water would begin to boil. Lord, may we boil by your grace and by your spirit. May we boil afresh with a passion for Jesus. Isaiah 64 is a cry from dislocated people for God to establish his greatness and to make his name known. And for his people and the nation to feel the weight of his presence. Now, God's present everywhere. But this prayer is that God would be conspicuously present, would be concretely present, would be manifestly present. There's a difference between the universal cosmic fact of God's omnipresence, that Almighty God. God of blazing holiness, righteousness, justice, a God who's all-wise, fully competent, all-knowing, all-powerful, a God with no beginning and no end, is also a God who's fully present across the cosmos. And he's near and present whether you sense his nearness or not. And maybe this morning you had a gentle sense of his nearness as we sang those songs, and maybe you had a visceral moment as you watched those ladies being plunged into the water. But here's a prayer for a collective visceral encounter that God would pull back the curtain and display and demonstrate his greatness, his power, his ability to deliver, to erase sin, to pull people out of selfish, sinful patterns and routines that God would pull back the curtain, that God would reveal himself, that God would be manifestly present. Come down, Lord. Now, we know from the Bible, our God is the God who has come down. And here, the writer in Isaiah is recalling Exodus 19, where God came down and gave his revelation, gave his law to Moses and the Israelites. And when he came down on Sinai, Moses was enveloped in the thick cloud of God's presence. The mountains trembled, and there was fire and smoke, and the people were filled with the fear and terror of the Lord. They were thunderstruck and awestruck by God's majesty and greatness. And here the prayer's going, let's have some of that, Lord. Lord, show up like you did in the past. Make your name great. Make your presence felt. Come 
into our brokenness, our rebellion, into our hollow, dry, feeble lives and ignite us afresh with your presence. This is a prayer for a revival visitation from heaven. We worship the God who has come down in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal, uncreated Word of God, the Creator, Son of God, becomes fully human and enters into human brokenness and lives a sinless, unimpeachable life of blazing love, shadowless holiness, and lives the life that you and I cannot possibly live for us in our place. And as Pastor Phil reminded us this morning, not only that a great exchange took place, that Jesus lived the life for us that we can't live, and so we're saved by his obedience, but we're also saved by his death on the cross, where a great and glorious exchange took place. He took our sin, our rebellion, our rage, our brokenness upon himself. And when he was buried, it was buried with him. And then God the Father saw fit by the power of the Holy Spirit to raise Jesus from the dead. And because of that, Jesus was vindicated and we can be righteousified, declared righteous by God and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. He not only erases our sin and forgives our sin, but he declares us righteous. He's the God who has come down to us. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit on the earth. So if we pray this with a New Testament perspective, we're actually praying that God himself, God the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, the third person of the triune Godhead, the Spirit would come amongst us in a new way, in a fresh way, and elevate us out of our dark, shadowy patterns and establish us in lives full of love, for Jesus, devotion to Jesus, lives of holiness and purity that come as an overflow of fire coming from heaven. Here's a prayer for deliverance, cleansing, intervention. Lord, come down from heaven and disrupt the status quo. Lord, shake up our dry and hollow routine. Lord, come and wake the walking dead. I used to watch that show, and then I get tired of it. Get tired of seeing zombies eating each other, and I'm going, nah, I had enough of that. And then I go to different churches, and I see the walking dead. I shake hands with them. (laughs) Because the Bible makes an unhappy verdict that it's possible to subscribe to a form of godliness without having godly power. And what is that? That's misery for you and misery for everybody else that has the misfortune for you to rub shoulders with them. You're miserable, they're miserable, and God's not too happy either because he has something entirely different in mind. And so, Lord, come down from heaven and stir up the walking dead. Ray Ortland said, this biblical prayer teaches us how to pray when we find ourselves in the shadows. And this biblical prayer challenges us to scrap our routinized expectations from God and seek him boldly for a fresh visitation from on high. Lord, Come down from heaven, make the mountains tremble, come like a blazing fire, set the dry twigs ablaze, turn up the temperature, Father, get things boiling. Now, do we need that? In our day, we desperately need that in a way we don't understand. I'm rediscovering someone who used to scare me as a young man. 
I used to be a young man, and I came across a guy with no first names, two initials, A.W. Tozer. And I used to read this guy and go, wow, he's a grumpy old goat. And as I've understood his biography, he was a mystic, but he was also a grumpy old man. You can be both. You can be a prophetic you can hear from God, and you can just be grumpy. And so it used to disturb me as a young guy. It was a kind of form of evangelical self-punishment. Well, I'm feeling kind of happy today. Let's read A.W. Tozer, why don't we poke myself? And so I'd be reading Tozer. And he made a claim, and I dismissed it in my youthful arrogance. But as a middle-aged geezer, I've come back round to embrace its truth. Tozer claimed that if God was to remove the Holy Spirit from the church in North America, 95% of activity would go on uninterrupted. And I'm like, grumpy old man, when I read that. Thanks for sharing, not very much. A.W. Tozer with no first name. And I discovered he did have a first name, Aiden. If you were called Aiden, you would call yourself A.W. And I also discovered it's true. Across North America, as I have the privilege to zigzag North America, the dominant ecclesial motifs, ways of understanding church, are church as business, church as private club, or we can get her done. But Jesus says in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Now, you're a Christian, not because it was your great idea, but because the Spirit of God mysteriously imparted new life to you. And you're sustained as a Christian because of the presence and grace of the Holy Spirit. And in a way we don't understand, we need a visitation from God, the church in Canada. Back in 1985, when Phil was 19 and I was 12, try that one on for size, <laughs> I got wind of a rumor that there was a revival visitation in the Hebrides. And I, I knew there'd been a revival there, 47 or 49, when we got there, uh, we discovered there'd actually been three significant outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And then one of my mentors had come in on the back end of the slipstream and, of the 49 revival and, and had a renewal ministry where all kinds of exotic, fragrant, glorious, crazy, beautiful things happened. But we went up there and took a, a car as far north as you could go in Scotland, the land that God forgot, Scotland, went to a place called Ullapool, and then got on a ferry and had 20 hours of seasickness or something like that and got there and discovered there was no revival. So we got on a plane and we flew back. No, we stuck around. And we received hospitality from a, a Presbyterian pastor who was sitting in the living room and pointed to his mother-in-law and said, she's one of the battleships. And I thought she was maybe going to hit him. But she didn't even flinch. I said, battleship, that's not a very nice way to talk about your mother-in-law. Is this the way they speak about the mother-in-law? We call them battle axes in the west of Scotland. <laughs> and so you must call them battleships in Stornoway in the Isle of Lewis. He says, no, she's one of our prayer warriors. She's a battleship. She does damage 
to the kingdom of darkness. And I'm going, that's what I'm talking about. And that was almost a Pentecostal moment for a Presbyterian when he shared that with me. And he said, yeah, she's prayed and she's seen God move in our island three times this century. I said, that's amazing. And they began to describe scenes at the church in Barvis where people were so overcome with the glory of God, the manifest presence of God, and his sense of his holiness and their unrighteousness before God, they had to be carried out the building. And this is the Presbyterians, by the way. And God's radioactive heavenly presence was so strong in that gathering place of that church that some people couldn't make their way into the building. They were kind of struck down by God as they approached the building. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. We've got to go and see this place. So we went there, and it was dark and drab, but I could see the property and visualize where people were thunderstruck by the manifest presence of God. And I could visualize the two old women who seemed to be human catalysts, who just prayed that God would tear the heavens apart and come down into their church and into their community and prayed for a spiritual visitation. Church had no young people whatsoever, and then God showed up in saving power, and the church was flooded with young people. God was doing strange things where people were coming under conviction of sin out minding their own business. I met a guy, uh, this was in 1985, who was out cutting peat in a bog. No, he wasn't a serial killer. He, he was cutting bits of soil up in a marshland. And he was a, a blasphemer who didn't care for God. And the Spirit sovereignly came upon him, convicted him of his sin, and Jesus saved him. I'm going, wow, that's life in a different planet. And someone had done a survey in the high school of what the three greatest fears of a teenager in Stornoway in the Isle of Lewis were in 1985. Number one, unemployment. Number two, nuclear holocaust. That the bombs wouldn't reach the U.S., they would land in Scotland instead. And then three, Kurum. And I'm like, Kurum, what's that? It's a Gallic word that means conviction. That somehow you would be mysteriously hijacked by Jesus. Your heart would be cold and indifferent to God. You wouldn't give a rip about the things of God. But God gives a rip about you. And the Spirit descends on you. And you're hijacked by Jesus. And in 1985, there was a lingering fear that that might happen to these self-absorbed adolescents. Why? Because revival leaves an imprint on a city, on a culture, and a place. Duncan Campbell said, revival is a community saturated with God. J. Edwin Orr said, it's a movement of the Holy Spirit bringing about a revival of New Testament Christianity on the church of Christ and its related community. My beloved mentor and, and friend, Luis Palau, 83 years of age, and he's come to Canada a great deal, hung out with the MBs, spoke for us at Multiply last year in Vancouver with C2C Network, been interacting with him over the issue of raising up a new generation of evangelists here in Canada. And he's seen revival 
in places in South America and he believes he's seen the signs of something stirring and coming to the surface in Canada and that God would revive his church and we would experience spiritual awakening. And he's praying. Doctors have actually given him four months to live now. But he's praying that he might see it in Canada. My boss and friend, Gord Fleming, another Scotsman, the MBs can only ever have two Scotsmen in their ranks at one time. Otherwise, there's disequilibrium in the force. And uh, several years ago, he was in Holy Trinity Brompton, which is the hotbed of Alpha, a spiritual hothouse of charismatic and evangelical spirituality. And while he was there, somebody had a prophetic word that the Lord would send revival to North America and it would start in Canada. Now, what do we make of that? We go, well, that's weird. It's a bunch of Anglicans. What do they know? Or we say, that's nice, revival. Or we press in. And we press in with scriptural authority from Isaiah 64. Press in, Lord. Rip the heavens apart. God, demonstrate your greatness. Lord, we know you are present everywhere, but we want to sense your nearness. We want you to come and dislodge apathy and religiosity and self-destructive patterns of sin. We want you to awaken a sleepy, slumbering, declining church and propel us into New Testament spirituality. We need to call on the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The essence of revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down on a number of people together upon a whole church, a number of churches, or perhaps a whole country. It is a visitation or outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God has come down among them. So pray, Holy Spirit, come down. Lord, visit us afresh. Pray, Lord, that you would come as a blazing fire, cleansing, purifying, awakening, impassioning, come like a firestorm from heaven. Revival can change a landscape. Secular historians say the thing that saved England from spiraling down into a bloody revolution like the bloody French Revolution was the evangelical awakening. And some of the principles were John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. But the question is, where might that start? I mean, John Wesley was a disaster. He was a failed missionary. He went to the Americas to do First Nations work, and he said, I went to convert the Indians, but oh God, who will convert me? And he's unraveled on the boat going across because it almost sinks, and he meets these weirdo Moravians who are besotted with Jesus, and they're pretty thrilled if the boat would sink because they go, we're not going down, we're going up. And that just unnerved him no end. And then he finds his spiritual barrenness because he's got nothing to say. If you don't know Jesus and the gospel isn't alive in your own heart, nada. And so he returns to England defeated and empty and unnerved by people who have such a powerful encounter with Jesus. They look death in the eye and they smile. And he's in a little small group gathering in a building in Aldersgate Lane in London and some dreary soul is reading some comments from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans 1. How inspiring is that? But as he hears those words, the righteous shall live by faith, he realizes the righteousness of God is a gift, and the gospel ignites like a flame in his heart. And he says, my heart was strangely warmed 
Arthur Skevington Wood wrote a biography of John Wesley called The Burning Heart. And it's maybe revival starts with one burning heart, two burning hearts. We want a national gospel awakening, but what if it's personal? What if we make this a personal plea? Lord, visit me. Lord, I've lost the plot. Lord, in the light of the searchlight of your spirit and the truth of your word, I'm not who you want me to be. I've accommodated sin and bitterness and disobedience and impurity has clogged up my spiritual arteries. Lord, visit me, awaken me. Lord, my heart is cold, set me alight. Lord, send fire from heaven, burn up the chaff and dross. Lord, tear the heavens apart, rent the heavens like a curtain and come down, come down into my life that the mountains might tremble. Those obstacles that have set themselves up against your rule and reign in my life, shake them, Lord. Take the twigs of my life and ignite them. Put a fire in me, ignite me with passion and zeal for you. Lord, establish your presence in my heart in a new way. Propel me into a life of love and devotion and joy and holiness and purity. Lord, come down. Let's pray. Where can revival start? In my self-absorbed Scottish heart. In, in my empty, withered soul. In your wayward heart. In your empty container. God could start a new day. Release new life. Impart fire from heaven now, this morning. So we're going to gather collectively tomorrow night to pray. But today there's an opportunity to do business with God, to receive from the Lord, to encounter the Lord. So I'm going to pray in a moment, but I'm going to invite you, if you want God to start a revival in your heart, to ignite you with the fresh flame of devotion for Jesus, that the affection and tenderness of Jesus would set the dry twigs of your life a light in a new way. Come. We declare this to be an open space and holy ground to meet with the loving Father. The prayer continues, Lord, you're our Father, we're your children. You're the potter, we're the clay. We're the work of your hands. Mold me. Do something fresh and new. Isaiah 64 invites us to receive from the Father who loves you. For him to come and burn up dross displace disobedience and rebellion and establish the centrality and beauty and fragrance and power and authority of Jesus. So if you want that fire to start, I'm going to invite you, just as we asked people last night, to come and kneel here. And in kneeling, that's a physical symbol of humility. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. And what? I'll send revival. I'll hear the land. I'll revive them. So we invite you to come. I'm going to pray. You come and kneel and say, I want to receive from the Lord. If you want to receive prayer, we'll pray with you. But if you just want to commune with the Father and invite the Spirit to come like a fire from heaven into your heart, into your soul, just linger 
and receive from the Lord. Father, we've heard your word. We've heard your invitation. And we've heard this prayer enshrined in the Old Testament that you invite us to echo. Lord, tear the heavens apart like a curtain. Rip the canopy apart. Lord, come down. Come and set us ablaze with your presence. Lord, come and establish your manifest presence in our weary hearts, in our empty souls. Come, Lord, ignite us with your love. We thank you, Spirit of the living God, that you are the fire of God. We thank you, Spirit of the living God, that you are the one who sheds abroad the love of God into the human heart. So we pray that you would do that work of renewing and establishing the love of God in our hearts, that you would come like a fire and burn up chaff and dross, and you would come like a fire and turn up the temperature of our affections, of our devotion. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you spilled your blood so that we could gain access to the throne room of heaven so that we could be adopted by the true and living God. We thank you more than that, that you've planted the spirit of adoption into our hearts. And we thank you, Jesus, that you love us with an everlasting love that never quits. And we pray that that everlasting, furious, relentless love would come upon us. Lord, come down from heaven. Touch those who kneel before you as an act of obedience, as an act of submission, as a plea to come down. Lord, send your Holy Spirit here in this place as we worship you, as we turn to you. Lord, turn your face to us. Make your name great in our lives and in this community. Jesus, have your way. Draw near to us, we pray, in your strong name.